what we found is that uh, Americans, both Democrats and Republicans, tend to overestimate how much their rival partisans uh, support political violence. Welcome to the On Wisdom Podcast with Igor Grossman and Charles Cassidy. Over the next half an hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We will discuss what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. It is with great pleasure that I announce our guest today, Rob Willer. Rob is a professor of sociology, psychology and business at Stanford University, where he is director of the Polarization and Social Change Lab and co-director of the Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society. Willer's research uses scientific methods to identify effective ways to achieve social change in divided societies. Rob has consulted for or partnered with a wide range of organizations, including the White House COVID-19 response team, the U.S. Surgeon General, the U.S. Department of Justice, the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation and two presidential campaigns his writing on polarization democracy elections and other topics has appeared in the new york times the washington post cnn scientific american the los angeles times and vox rob's 2017 ted talk how to have better political conversations has been viewed over 2.9 million times He's also collaborated with previous on wisdom guests including daka keltner jay van bavel and stefan cote Rob, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks a lot for having me. It's a pleasure. Okay, so you have done um, an insane amount of work in in many different fields and some that are incredibly relevant to um, the political climate, and we're going to be getting into that in depth. Um, I actually first came across your work in a bookshop years ago. Someone sent me your article, um, The Key to Political Persuasion, blew my mind i was i've been telling people about it ever since um but so and i remember at that time thinking i would love to speak to this guy that was maybe eight years ish ago um so you know it took a while but it's happened so thrilled that you're with us today um i'm gonna dive in with uh first question so this is about wisdom so wisdom is one of those terms can mean different things to different people um so i'd be interested to know uh, when you hear the word wisdom what does it mean to you and do you think there's anything that's perhaps overlooked or perhaps counterintuitive um about the phrase or the the label wisdom sure sure well i think it's a it's a terrific and fascinating question and i I guess I, I do come a little bit from a certain school of semantics that says that you know words uh, words can be more or less useful uh, <laughs> for communicating your meaning, and that there yeah. are correct definitions of words uh, right. that that right. they're yeah you just they just they have utility or they don't. But to answer mm-hmm. to answer the question, uh, what do I really value as far as like wise thinking uh, goes? I I would say that for me the the what I think of when I think of wisdom would be the careful balance of evidence-based, analytic, if if you want, scientific reasoning, balanced with careful moral normative reasoning, um, and and those two modes of thinking integrated together uh, in a really careful analytic way can can help us make decisions out in the world about what one ought to do, uh, what governments ought to do, what social movements ought to do, what, you know, what groups should do, uh, and what they shouldn't do better. Uh, but that we, I guess the, the counterintuitive thing, the overlooked thing is that mm. we have people who specialize in one or the other, you know, so we right. have uh, if we think about politics, think about current events, you think about everyday morality, 
uh, you have like a pop culture discussion about what one ought to do. Uh, you have sophisticated moral philosophers who also, you know, weigh in on this public policy folks, uh, op-ed writers, you know, there's, there's popular and academic literatures. It tends to be a bit separated from the cutting edge scientific evidence. Then you have these scientific conversations about what is, mm. and uh, they can be very a- analytical, very evidence-based. So we don't have as much rich thinking where both those things are turned up high, you know, where mm. people are best evidence and also uh, thinking morally or normatively as well. Mm. well that's interesting you talk about um, morality. So do you think um, that um, mor- morality is an essential part of wise behavior, um, or are these two concepts you know, they're inextricably linked or can you be wise without being moral? I mean, for me, the hardest kind of wisdom is to fuse these two different lines of reasoning. Uh, I think that it's relatively straightforward if you took a bunch of judgment and decision-making classes and and read up on that literature. I think it's pretty straightforward how to make good uh, decisions and judgments in the course of everyday life as you know, we understand it with the state of the current science. I think what is harder and is uh, and there's there's less literature to help you. There's less clear training is is to fuse very carefully uh, moral reasoning about what one ought to do with uh, with scientific evidence. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. So I want to dive into this a little bit, Rob. So, so you said like balancing, and maybe that leads to this next question, which is if you were to pick one thing that people could do to help them make wiser decisions, what would it be? And I guess like the your answer is it has something to do with balancing. So how would you balance? Well, uh, I mean, I guess what I would do is just recursively uh, be thinking uh, in terms of evidence as one confronts uh, morally loaded political questions. So here, here would be one just to get more concrete about mm. the style of reasoning that I'm that I'm suggesting can be helpful. Here's 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 one way that we've encountered it in the research that I've done in my lab, uh, and and thinking about how to present that work to broader audiences. So we've done research on what are more or less effective protest tactics. Uh, what sorts of protest tactics are, are likely to backfire uh, out in the world and, and which ones aren't. And uh, it's really interesting to think about this research from both a scientific perspective and a sort of moral normative perspective. And uh, because ultimately what one wants to know is, uh, you know, how should one be in the world or how should, how should uh, political actors go out in the world and, and take action? So our research suggests that uh, a whole class of behaviors that you might call protest behaviors, you might call extreme protest behaviors. So mm-hmm. highly disruptive uh, protest behaviors or behaviors that cause harm to other folks. And then at the extreme, uh, certainly violent behaviors that these tend to backfire in terms of their effects on public opinion. And people uh, tend to dislike a movement that uses them. Uh, and then also Sometimes they can also dislike the cause. They can be turned away from the positions and policies that that movement might be advocating for. Now, that's a lot of people have concluded that we must think that all extreme protest behaviors are bad, you know, in, in all cases. And we're not even saying that all extreme protest behaviors are 
are going to be uh, opposed popularly in all cases. We actually have a whole bunch of conditions that we think would need to be met to make this claim with much confidence. Uh, you know, it should be noted we are living in a, you know, like I'm living in a country, the U.S., where it was founded in a violent revolution, you know, a right, violent right. revolution. Yeah. Big protest got, movement, yeah. Right. We've got the leaders of that movement, like embossed on our coins and stuff, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so it's clearly there are big exceptions, you know, where uh, very extreme protest tactics can be very popularly received. Mm. I happen to be a supporter of the American Revolution. Yeah, I thought right. it was a good idea. So, uh, so clearly there are exceptions, and and there are tons of really interesting exceptions. So one line of critique of our research could be that. Uh, the most important thing is not necessarily for a movement to be popular. A movement being popular can help it achieve some of its ends, but it also could afford being unpopular in other cases in order to uh, affect change other ways. For example, you could do very disruptive protest tactics that are that make it very difficult for a company to do something that the protesters think is bad for it to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could just make it very costly for a company or an organization to do something like cut down trees or you know, a uh, strip mine or something like that. Uh, you could just make that activity really, really difficult. You could use extreme tactics. You could turn off the general public, but actually make it so costly for the organization to do the bad thing that they stop doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, that that would be one way that would be a quite strategic mm-hmm. use of extreme protest tactics and would be taking account of all the evidence, the moral considerations, and taking action. Or uh, a movement could say, you know what, this we don't really care what outside actors think about what we're doing that our purpose is actually to elevate the collective self-esteem of traditionally disadvantaged groups through collective action so you can think about some of like empowerment uh collective actions you know the lgbtq community has undertaken or uh that the black power movement did in the 60s and 70s uh mm-hmm. trying to where where uh, outsiders might say, hey, what you're doing is not necessarily persuasive to other people. And it could be that that is simply not their central purpose, that mm-hmm. they're trying to uh, establish group pride in mm-hmm. a cultural setting where they're disadvantaged and they might be tempted to internalize mm-hmm. uh, you know, negative perceptions of themselves and their group that are held by majority group members. And they're trying to get together, reject those and in particular, a key element is to not be thinking about what the outside right. group thinks of them. It's actually kind of the purpose is to forget about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so doing something that's unpopular might actually be on purpose, you know, um, mm-hmm. to be sure you're really rejecting the outside view of your group and replacing mm-hmm. it with a more positive one. And there, the internal project is the project, you know. Right. And that's a, that's a pretty groovy rationale, you know, like that makes mm-hmm. sense, you know. So it's that kind of careful, analytic, evidence-based, and also normative reasoning that I personally gets me very, I, that I get very interested about uh, mm. and interested in doing. It's interesting. I mean, the uh, I'm thinking of Extinction Rebellion. I don't know if that's was in the mm-hmm. news over here, but that was uh, it's a big deal in the UK. And, you know, it would always create this sort of discussion around the, the kitchen table, you know, people sort of supporting the overall message, but then saying, you know, this is inconveniencing, not necessarily, you know, it's, it will their behavior, you know, uh, lead to people not supporting them because it's, 
interfering with the public's um, you know opportunity um, ability to move around you know if you're interfering with trains etc like that so uh, it's a very hot debate that everyone gets quite hot under the collar about so it's interesting to you know know that people are kind of thinking about this carefully yeah and uh, you know it's interesting the extinction rebellion has recently sort of switched tactics okay or uh, they made this announcement that they were going to stop using highly disruptive tactics. Uh, uh-huh. be, and I think in part because Just Stop Oil has emerged as, you know, another actor, another environmental organization in Britain that is using extreme tactics. And I think that Extinction Rebellion sort of reasoned we don't need two, you know. Uh-huh. And then at least our lab's research suggests that if you have one very radical group in a social movement field, you know, like working on the same cause that they can actually create what's called a radical flank effect, where by contrast, more moderate movement groups look more positive. So yes, we studied this in the case of like animal rights, for example, where uh, the existence of that an extreme animal rights protest group might be viewed negatively, but interestingly makes the more moderate ones look positive by comparison. And it could be that Extinction Rebellion is trying to capitalize on exactly that sort of Uh, effect. Presenting themselves as the more um, moderate one. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, so I was going to ask um, about if, you know, because the way we behave often, uh, you know, is a consequence of the, the environment we're in. Um, so can you think of if you sort of have a, a magic wand or you add, you know, huge amount of policy influence, what could you or what could we change about the structure of our communities and how we live that might lead to all of us taking wiser decisions? Yeah, so it's it's such a good question, and it's one I think about. I I don't know if my answer connects very well to my first answer, but I'll do my best. <laughs> I did, far and away, the the biggest thing that I would do in the U.S. context would be to engage in a, a whole suite of structural democratic reforms that would make uh, our elect basically make the outcomes uh, that we're getting from elections from policy better reflect the preferences of the of the majority of the okay. people okay. Uh, right now the u.s has a bunch of like kind of distortionary policies that were created in you know the 18th century for very specific political reasons at the time uh you know some of them just trying to get the southern states on board and keep them in the fold mm. and these are really, really outdated and now are creating very, you know, distortionary effects on, on democratic representation, especially as we now have concentration of populations in on the coasts and, and in cities. So, uh, you know, we have this kind of absurd situation where Cal- the state of California has as many senators uh, as as the state of North Dakota. And, right. And it's, right. it's also it's a problem. Yeah. But the electoral college is also a huge problem. And we, we tend to not even talk about just how how extreme and ridiculous the, mm, the mm. problem is. And it, it has a lot of subtle effects. Like the obvious one is that people aren't getting what they want. But there's other subtle effects, like the Republican Party would be a, a better party, in, in my view, and in the view of most Americans, if it had to get 51% of the population on board. If it was really competing for 50% plus one, rather than only needing, you know, 47%, uh, you know, or, or less really to, to win the Senate anyway, uh, you know, it would be a better party, you know, because they, they would be thinking, oh, well, how do we grab that, mm-hmm. you know, five, they might make a decision, 
we will moderate substantially on issues X, Y, Z, effort to grab five or 6% more moderate, and we will lose our 3% furthest right flank. Uh, but we'll actually come out ahead. And the kind of changes they would do uh, to, if they made such a choice would be, you know, really, really good for the country and, and help mm-hmm. for our politics. Mm-hmm. Um, I, this is, of this, I have a kind of a follow-up question, which I think is going to relate to, relates a lot to your work. I mean, you uh, work in a specific field and it seems there are things that you care about a lot. And at the same time, you are also a scientist. Obviously, scientists can care about things. That's allowed. Um, but I'm just interested in, the, you know, um, is there... I, I don't think conflicts of interest is the right phrase because we're allowed to care about things and research things. But do you sometimes... Uh, do you think about that tension that exists between working on topics that you care about? Um, and should some topics... that be off limits to scientists and be done completely objectively. And what do you think about that sort of tension? Yeah, I think a lot about that tension um, because I feel very strongly that, uh, you know, that we, that we need science to be done in, in a fair, uh, open-minded way uh, that we need to uh, scrutinize our biases uh, that we need to check one another's biases. And I try really hard in my research to kind of bend over backwards to to prove myself wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like the radical flank effect paper I was just mentioning was kind of an internal critique. We had done this research suggesting movements lose uh, support if they uh, if they use these kinds of tactics and we kind of ask, well, what are all the ways we're wrong? You know, like what, right. what are examples of that? And we've run a few studies on that and not everything provided clear results, but the radical flank effect one uh, did. And it said, oh, well, there's this actually countervailing effect where these moderate factions are, are gaining support by contrast, you know, potentially. I think there's some limitations to our research as well. Mm-hmm. But we try to do that. We try to say, uh, how might the last thing we did be wrong and how could we get a uh, you know, how could we interrogate that with data and hopefully get a more complete and nuanced picture of the whole phenomenon as a result? Uh, so we try not to hold too much to our priors. Uh, we try to fall in love with our own ideas too much. Mm-hmm. We try to admit to replication failures, uh, but also go beyond that and sort of say, okay, if you have a replication failure and the first study was conducted well, well, there's probably something that's varying here. Uh, and if you can find out what that is, that thing that differentiates the first study and the second study and why the results were different. And if you can deeply understand it, now you can make a, a better, more nuanced theory. And, mm. and that's what, you know, science is all about. So, uh, yeah, I, th- I think we, we try not to fall in love with our ideas. And, and recently we've gotten more into uh, testing other people's ideas, you know, so mm. taking on research designs where we're asking ourselves not what's my best idea and you know how do i pursue it uh, mm-hmm. which is kind of the conventional academic model but instead like what are all the really good ideas about how to address some research question how to answer a research question and how can we test them as rigorously as possible which is a more uh which i which i think is a, the way you would do it if you were really just trying to do the work as well as possible and so we're kind of gravitating towards that model interesting that sounds like that might be we were going to talk a little bit later about the um paper you did interventions to reduce partisan animosity where you look at a whole bunch of 
different other people's interventions. I don't know if that's that's kind of using that approach. When you're looking at all the different ideas that are out there. Yeah, and you know, I had this conversation with someone who was sort of a on the outskirts of academia, was more of a public health uh, researcher out out in the world. I had this conversation with this guy early in the COVID pandemic, where I was trying to figure out ways that I could productively contribute to pandemic response. This would be like April 2020. And I had worked, uh, Jay Van Bavel and I had organized this paper that came out in Nature Human Behavior uh, around that time, um, trying to trying to kickstart research in the social and behavioral sciences relevant to the COVID. Um, and, and I was out, you know, just asking people, like, how can we plug in? What can we do? Mm-hmm. I talked to this guy and he was like, well, you have to understand that, you know, in the academic scientific space, the incentives and the culture, it's really all about putting yourself forward and advancing your career. And, you know, like that, that whole approach isn't very helpful here. You know, like here you need to have a problem focus. You need to be most concerned with helping. And and I remember in the conversation kind of wanting to be like, no, no, I really am. I'm like you are, you know, like I, I have the right motivations here. Yeah. yeah. But the gist of the conversation was kind of like, Oh, then prove it, you know, like, right. Right. Yeah, if you're not like all the other academics, yeah, just, like, get the money where stuff. your mouth is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I took that as a challenge. This guy was much nicer about this than the sure, sure. <laughs> but uh, but I was like, ah, this you know, this critique lands a bit, you know. Mm-hmm. I've, I've, mm-hmm. I've done a lot of research where I was interested in you know, whatever, extending my CV probably, right? And, right, right. Uh, but it's certainly been a too prominent motive, we'll say that, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, how would I do this if I really cared, if I wanted to prove to this guy or to, you know, to myself that I really gave a shit about the problem at hand uh-huh, uh-huh. and try to restructure my approach anyway, uh, so that that was always the central consideration. Um, is, that, is that something that's has stayed with you as an approach now going forward? Or is you know, that's like pandemic time and now it's back to business as, as usual? <laughs> no, I think it's one of these at least for me anyway, a very positive legacy of the pandemic is right, I'm still right. trying to think that way of, uh, you know, like how to, um, what's the right way to to answer this question. If you were taking the question as seriously as possible, what are the outcomes you should be studying? Who are the partners you should be working with? Whose ideas should you, you know, try to draw upon if you were trying to get the best answer? Um, and it's, been a revelatory shift mm. for me, you know, and very rewarding as well to to do less <laughs> so yeah. focused work. Yeah, yeah. You know, I actually want to follow up on that uh, a little bit. So, you know, I, I, I spoke to Matt Feinberg about you know, like I've Rob on the podcast, and he's like, mm-hmm. "Well, ask him where would you draw the line between being an activist and being a scientist? How do you decide if something is off limits?" Both sides. For instance, like you, the example that you brought, it's like, you know, a lot of our colleagues decided to suddenly become epi- hobby epidemiologists at the beginning of the pandemic for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a good question. Like, should we have done it in the way how some of us went forward and started advocating for, you know, particular policies or should we have stuck to, you know, social science, for instance? Um and I guess the question, like the more general question is, where would you draw the line? Where would you, is there a way to do both or should we be mindful of uh, the agendas that are obviously always driving us one way or another? Yeah, well, I think there's 
there's so much there's so much there we could i feel like we could talk for an hour about just this question it's it's such a good one um so so one is just to chew on the first one first of like uh whether social scientists should have involved themselves in covid or or should involve themselves in the next thing like that i think for me the answer is uh yes but carefully and very analytically and very uh, humbly. Uh, so the, the case for intervening in, you know, COVID, for example, or, or something like it, is that a, a bunch of the people that are making the highest level decisions or even the local level decisions are making decisions that involve judgments about behavior, about human behavior. And they mostly are going to base those on low quality evidence and assumptions Uh and you might be able to improve that evidence base by, you know, contributing past, you know, prior research being interpreted for folks or new research would be even better. Um, also, people are going to be trying a bunch of things and you could test how well those things work and then inform whether we should continue doing them. Um, and so, you know, like I, the closer I got to the machinery of COVID response and how it was thinking about behavior, uh, the more convinced I was that social and behavioral science should have been more involved, should continue to be very involved, or should should be more involved even now uh, in all that. So, for example, you know, Ad Council made public service announcements. They got the big contract from the White House, and they. Uh, went about doing public service announcements, but they didn't target the populations that were, this is when vaccine promotion was the key thing. They were targeting populations that were average or even above average in vaccine intentions and not targeting, you know, conservatives, uh, religious folks, folks, the people that were clearly, clearly, if you even just descriptively looked at the public opinion data, uh, you didn't even really need to be a social scientist, but we're clearly going to be the persistent vaccine holdouts. And that work just wasn't being done in an evidence-based way. Mm -hmm. They also weren't testing their ads, you know, like they used some focus groups, which is essentially an unpublishable methodology in the social sciences for good reason. Uh, we started testing them and providing them data. They, they weren't that interested in it, you know? And so that, that was a plan we were doing it for free. We were just like, Hey, you know, like we care about what you're doing. We want to support you. You know, here's a test we ran. And I don't, I don't think it was in, in their, uh, their MO to, to use that or vaccine lotteries when vaccine lotteries came out i was like this is a fantastic idea you know it's it's going to motivate people who are like maybe not terrific on analytical reasoning uh maybe aren't very numerate uh you know it's gonna be very motivating to them exactly the kind of people that might be bad at risk assessments and those people are probably the the vaccine holdout people you know Mm -hmm. Uh, so I, I was just like, this is a great idea. It also seems targeted to the population of interest. So we started running studies on this and it it didn't, you know, the data did not suggest the vaccine lotteries were, were helping particularly. And right. that was really, you know, I think that kind of wound up being the final story there was that the vaccine lotteries didn't move the needle, which it, uh, I still am surprised by. Uh, but that's good to know, right? Because I, we we had evidence anyway that they may even lead to backfire effects, and uh, because states might get overconfident in their vaccine lottery and not do other things, um, so that was valuable information that could save states money and and also push them to to be thinking about 
other things that are more effective. So there's just like a lot of stuff like that where mm. you know, the research can can help a lot and that uh, people are going to be, people who took like two social science classes in undergrad are going to have to make decisions, you know, like, yeah. about how to message. It's very around. humbling too, don't you think? Like that, uh, like on the one hand, you have this uh, wealth of findings and uh, insights, and then you try to reach out to the policymakers and uh, some of them just don't want to listen uh, for all sorts of reasons, because they're too busy, because so much is happening. But on the other hand, also that you may be wrong. Uh, you know, you, you think that, that this will happen, but as usual in science, something else may happen, actually. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was really, I mean, that, that was exactly the situation. I, I, it's, it was really frustrating because I felt like in a lot of ways we uh, got to the just kind of the highest levels in terms of talking to people, uh, you know, t- talking to the Surgeon General, the White House COVID response team, like in a lot of ways, like I gave a company-wide talk at Twitter, like in, in, I think, April of 2020 about, you know, things they could be doing. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't really ask for a lot better access in a way, better than on any other research projects we've we've worked on. And yet I had the exact same reaction that, that you just had, you know, that it was, it wasn't enough, you know. And so you wound up in this situation where Francis Collins, when he steps down at the NIH and he's assessing COVID response, he's like, the biggest thing we did, we got wrong is we didn't emphasize the behavioral science parts enough. And in my, you know, and I'm at home, like, man, we actually ran a study testing Francis Collins specifically. Uh, he had, he had done this uh, speech at one point talking about uh, his own religious faith and how that was connected to his support for vaccines. Mm-hmm. And we had basically like tested that, published a paper in PNAS about it, with, you know, a top journal that's pretty prominent. And, you know, it didn't even get back to him. You're like, we tried so hard to just get that information to him. Like, hey, when you did this, it there's good reason to think it was helpful. Keep doing it, you know? And I couldn't even get that through, you know, mm-hmm. to him to the guy who said he wanted more behavioral science information. Um, so anyway, it was, yeah, it, it was frustrating, but you know, I think things are changing. There's, there's greater, greater interest in, in behavioral science uh, in government than there's ever been. And I think it'll get better, you know, and, and we don't, we definitely don't know everything, but we, we know a lot and a lot of decisions will be made on weaker evidence than, than what we can offer. Uh, let's switch gears a little bit. You talked about the more general stuff about wisdom, and I want to talk a little bit about your work, and specifically your uh, 2015 New York Times article, The Key to Political Persuasion. So that mm-hmm. one introduced a lot of people to this concept of moral reframing, and I was wondering if you could just share with our listeners a little bit about it and tell us, well, give us a few examples of uh, how it works and whether it can be effective. Sure, absolutely. So uh, moral reframing is the idea that you might be able to make uh, more effective appeals uh, for something, say say a, a political uh, position that you hold, if you connect that political position to the moral values of the person or people you're targeting for persuasion. And that might sound really obvious, you know, why why wouldn't you try to connect uh, something you're trying to persuade somebody on, you know, with with their values, uh, since their values are, are things they care very deeply about. But it turns out that it's it's not actually that intuitive for people. In fact, people usually make 
political appeals based on their own moral values. And uh, and very often in a morally and politically divided society, these persuasion situations will be ones where you hold a political position. Uh, it's rooted in your values. You're trying to convince somebody who you know doesn't agree with you yet, or maybe even actively disagrees with you, and the values that uh, that they care most about are different values. And so what you have to do is a thing that turns out to be really hard, which is to get out of your own moral worldview uh, and into that of the, the person you're trying to persuade and think about why they might come to agree with you on, on the thing you're trying to persuade them on while still having the values they do, while still, you know, in a way, being the, the person that they are. Um, so some examples would be we tested uh, this is before uh, same sex marriage was legal in the U.S. We tested an argument in support of same sex marriage that was articulated in terms of uh, the values of, of group loyalty and patriotism. And so it said things like gay Americans are proud, patriotic Americans who contribute to our society and buy homes and pay taxes and raise families, you know, just like everyone else and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they deserve the same rights and, uh, that everybody else has. And that sort of argument led to higher levels of support for same-sex marriage than an argument that emphasized uh, like equality, social justice, fairness, uh, you know, that that was a more conventional argument for same-sex marriage that, that you'd be more likely to, to hear. Uh, and that this effect was driven by conservatives specifically uh, really you know, be more persuaded by the argument in terms of group loyalty and patriotism, which are are values that that conservatives tend to hold at high levels, uh, but they don't tend to hold uh, these kind of more social justice, uh, you know, group equality type values at, at the same levels that that liberals do. Um, so that'd be one example. Another example uh, is we've also seen patriotism messages for uh, environmental protection and taking action on climate change, uh, which which are effective that, that other labs have done. Um, yeah, we've also uh, I mean, we often will do these patriotism arguments because they actually work uh, quite well in persuading conservatives. And we found that it works the the other way as well. So if you wanted to, uh, for whatever reason, if you wanted to persuade liberals to support high levels of military spending, um, right. the best way to do it would be to explain how the military, or at least the best way that we've found, would be to explain how the military plays a role in upward mobility for people from from poor backgrounds, and that the military is a place where uh, minorities can compete on a level playing field um, that, you know, it's one of the first institutions in the U.S. that was racially integrated and and so on and so on. So there's uh, there's an appeal that can be made for military spending that's going to resonate more with liberals uh, than a, than one in terms of like respect for authority, patriotism and so on, which which doesn't resonate as much. Actually, let me follow up on this a little bit. Because, yeah. uh, uh, connecting the moral reframing to the discussion that we just had before about the work that you have done over COVID. And I'm just thinking, uh, maybe this will throw a wrench uh, in, in our discussions, or maybe we'll have to cut <laughs> it. But let me ask this, uh, nevertheless. So yeah. imagine at some point the pandemic is kind of over fizzling out. I'm not sure if we're there yet. It depends on whom you ask and where you are. But imagine we're getting to that level, and there's still a lot of people who are very hesitant to change uh, the way how they hunkered down over the pandemic. 
mm-hmm. and for many of them, it's a moral argument. So how would you reframe it so that they would be willing to, I guess, get out of their comfort zone at that stage? And maybe you've oh, done work on this already. But it, I mean, it's, I feel it's a sensitive topic. Right now, it's almost impossible to talk about. It's very awkward to start talking about like uh, changing rules and practices about COVID. Yeah, yeah, this is very interesting. So like, and then specifically, like, how would you motivate the high compliance folks to uh, relax their overly cautious behaviors and reintegrate in society, that kind of thing? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. So I guess I would say, uh, I mean, so this is going to be a left-leaning group because they were the the really high compliance folks, at least, well, in, yep. in all of North America. Uh, so you'd want to target equality considerations, harm uh, to vulnerable peoples. Um, so I guess you could make an argument that, uh, I mean, it's difficult because like, the most obvious thing is that people might be inadvertently sort of doing harm to their children, you know, by kind of keeping them too, mm. uh, you know, too, too far withdrawn from society mm. or from social interaction. Uh, but then people can get very sensitive about that, right? If you suggest that they're causing harm to their children. Sure. Yeah. So I right. might not do that. But if you could make some kind of argument that the economy would function better and, and would be better for like, um, creating creating jobs in certain mm-hmm. sectors, service sector, for example, that would benefit poorer folks, minority folks, like people uh, people who've suffered uh, the most during the pandemic. Uh, that you can mm-hmm. get the economy going right. by getting out and, and reclaiming, you know, your old behaviors, uh, uh, going to restaurants, things like that, at the rate that you used to, you know, can help spark that sector again. Um, I'm mean, just kind of spitballing off the top of my head, but I think it's a, yeah, I think it's, there's a, there's a deficit of research on this, but you're right that it, at this point in time, that does seem to be a real problem. Uh, I, I hope this continues to be the state of the pandemic where we're worried about casting off the, uh, the restrictions rather than, you know, putting them back on. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about the future. This is about the future. I'm not saying that we are necessarily that state now. It depends on where you are and whom you ask, of course. Uh, but uh, at some point, uh, pandemics have the beginning and they also have this end. And the end is often the one where you all almost don't notice that there is an end. And certainly that's been the case for the previous pandemics in the 20th century. Um, so it's a challenging question on that end as well, because uh, then nobody can tell you if it's really over or not. It depends on whom you ask. No, I totally agree. I mean, and yeah, I know I, I feel like I'm living your question right now as I'm trying <laughs> to figure out like, wait, should, how over should I think this is exactly right. how cautious do I need to be? I mean, the biggest thing that we found was helpful was elite cues, you know, like cues uh, about what to do that came from your trusted leaders and like biggest effect sizes we ever found on increasing vaccine intentions uh, were to show conservatives or Republicans a video of Donald Trump, you know, promoting vaccines because he was was really on the right side on vaccines, you know, Mm -hmm. to his credit. He got (laughs) virtually everything else wrong about the pandemic, but he definitely was right about the vaccines. And uh, and a lot of people didn't know it because conservative media didn't really promote this content, you know, because it was so at odds with 
what other folks were, were saying. And uh, and so a lot of people right. just didn't even, didn't even know how strongly Donald Trump was pro-vaccine. So you showed that to people and you could move, move people a good bit. So I guess intuitively that would mean uh, platforming, you know, uh, respected uh, leaders uh, from the left, you know, to persuade liberals that now is the time that you can you can relax the restrictions you've you've been using. I'm um, I'm going to talk. This next question is 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 basically about sort of a a kind of a strange thing that's been happening in the last few years. I guess probably yeah in in America, um, perhaps in other places as well, but is you know growing support. Um, for violent behavior that we would have probably been horrified by if you went back 10, 20 years. Um, and you wrote a paper um, in 2022 um, called Correcting Inaccurate Metaperceptions Reduces American Support for Partisan Violence. And it sounds like, a, from you know what I can tell, it sounds like a pretty simple, specific approach for counteracting this sort of growing support for violence. So it sounds like a really important idea. And I'd love to just hear you just kind of outline it a little bit because it sounds like it could be really useful. So could you tell us a bit about it? Sure. Yeah. And I, I think this whole topic of support for political violence in the U S is, is quite interesting. Um, so what we found is that, uh, Americans, both Democrats and Republicans tend to overestimate how much their rival partisans, uh, support political violence, the use of political violence, uh, to achieve, you know, use of violence to achieve political ends. So like Democrats and Republicans alike overestimate one another's support for violence by like three, 400%, depending on how we studied it. So just massive, massive over perceptions. And, uh, you know, like rooted in that is that actual levels of support for political violence are, are quite low. I mean, from my perspective, they should be zero. So they still mm. concern me. But, you know, if you were estimating them on a hundred point scale, then, you know, you, the true values would be between like, you know, seven to 10, somewhere in that kind of a range. But people think at least among their rivals that they're much higher. And then we found that if you simply correct people's misperceptions uh, with the accurate information that they then reduce their own already low levels of support for political violence, um, which might seem impossible. It's so low that it's, you know, it's near a floor, uh, but it is actually reducible. And so we found um, something like a 40% reduction in support for political violence and, and a reduction that actually persisted or was detectable as, as uh, still operant uh, about a month out from the from the correction so people people saw a single screen in a survey experiment one day uh redu- you know that just corrected their misperceptions of, of the prevalence of this of this support among their rivals it, re- it immediately reduced their own violence substantially and then even almost a month later it was uh, still still had an effect so it's, it's yeah. great it's it's i guess i'm surprised because you know one thing that you sort of learn from um you know, reading about psychology, it's like giving people information doesn't necessarily change their mind. But like, this seems like a very clear case where you just give people accurate information about something they were mistaken about. And it, it you know, almost instantly changes a, a fairly tightly held belief. So it surprises me, I guess. Yeah, I think that the reason, you know, this whole area, this is this is called like the meta perceptions literature, mm-hmm. uh, meta perceptions being perceptions of other people's perceptions. Right, right. 
and uh, it's it's super it's a super interesting area, and not everything works. So I just saw uh, Samara Klar from uh, Arizona, a political scientist who had run a study in the Israeli-Palestinian context, uh, correcting misperceptions uh, about levels of support for violence and levels of opposition to uh, like a two-state solution. I think I'm not remembering I'm not remembering all the details, but. Uh, she had found that the meta perceptions were not that wrong um, and that the correction didn't have an effect, which makes sense if the meta perceptions are not that wrong. Uh, but then Iran Halperin has run one that was in the Iran Palestinian context that, or sorry, in the Israeli Palestinian context, Iran uh, ran this study uh, that targeted violence specifically and there did find a small effect. Uh, but Definitely the effects in the Israeli-Palestinian context have not been as big as, as they are in the U.S. And an interpretation right. of that is that people are accurately perceiving the actual levels of sincere engagement and conflict in mm. Israel-Palestine. You know, that they're a little bit wrong, but they're not that wrong to where this is a particularly high-efficacy way to right. intervene. Right. And in the U.S. polarization context, it's almost like famous for being over-perceived. Right. Uh, by any metric, people are you know, greatly over perceiving how negative and hostile the views of their rivals are in the, in this conflict. Right. So I want to switch gears and uh, actually get on that topic of political polarization and your work on figuring out what interventions actually work on reducing partisan animosity. So you reviewed a whole range of different perspectives uh, and approaches. What mm -hmm. did we learn? Yeah, so um, so in this study, we crowdsourced ideas for uh, how we could effectively reduce Americans' uh, dislike of rival partisans and also their anti-democratic attitudes, which we, we felt were at concerning levels. And uh, the way we did this, we put out a call on social media and, you know, worked our various social networks, tried to get academics and importantly, non-academic practitioners uh, working as activists or in the nonprofit space on these problems uh, to submit ideas that we could test in a survey experiment. And we got like 250 submissions, way, way more than we had expected. <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, yeah. So how many good. of them were not uh, not academics? Uh, uh I think like about 25% of the submissions were. That's very really good. Yeah. 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 It was great. It was the, that in particular uh, was really, really rewarding because we, we knew that there were people, you know, the academics know a lot about this and they have actuarial knowledge, you know, of this phenomenon, but we really wanted to also get the kind of, you know, the knowledge that was outside of academia that we couldn't find in the journals or at the conferences. It would be harder for us to access from people who are, every day, maybe, you know, talking to people mm -hmm. uh, that are holding these views. We thought that was really important. Um, and so we tested 25 of these, which we had selected to be what we thought were the most promising, but also a relatively diverse set of ideas. And the strategies that seemed to be most effective for reducing partisan animosity, uh, and by the way, these were the same among Democrats and Republicans, which is maybe surprising, but interesting. Uh, yeah, the two strategies uh, were, one, um, to present people with examples of uh, relatable and um, 
you know, like warm, respectful, sympathetic people from the other side. Uh, so there were interventions that uh, showed video of people that were presumably of, of a different political persuasion, but nonetheless, respect, you know, being respectful and relatable and, and just kind of telling their story and also being interested to, to understand uh, their rival's perspectives. And then the other strategy was overarching identities, you know, uh, invoking common identities like, you know, Americans or, you know, mm. something like that, that, that cross cut across the, the partisan divide. And it was, it was interesting because if, if you had pulled social psychologists, like what are the top two sort of ideas to leverage to reduce animosity between groups. Those, those might even be just about the top two, you know, of like find empath, empathy, you know, uh, eliciting examples from the other side that help you connect with a single person and then also overarching identities. So in a way, it was a sort of validation of, of social psychology, folk knowledge in a way. But you didn't do the prediction markets about what will be the best No, we did. We did do the prediction markets as well. Yeah. And um, we found that the academics were were pretty good. They were pretty good. They were definitely uh, better at predicting than uh, than lay folks were. And um, but in a particular way, like that their predictions correlated better with the actual effect sizes. Uh, we did find that they were uh, actually too pessimistic about the partisan animosity effects they they thought that something like half the interventions would be successful um whereas lay people were a little more optimistic and that turned out to be right oh. and so this is kind of thing where uh, <laughs> if i had to try to explain this it would be that the the academics were better at knowing which specific interventions would have how big of an effect mm. but they had this overall kind of pessimistic view of how good academics well, this mostly academic pool would be at affecting this outcome, perhaps informed by recent replication problems in, in the social right. sciences. Mm -hmm. But uh, they maybe didn't account enough for the fact that this research area is mostly post-replication crisis. Uh, and so most right. of the, the studies actually had a really well-powered evidence behind them, uh, the, the ones that motivated the submitters to the, to the challenge. So, I mean, it's so useful to have someone d have done this huge piece of work and boil, I know it's not as simple as this, but boiled it down to a couple of uh, useful ideas. So if we're looking at this practically now, we've got these two ideas that, you know, um, seem to be effective. How, how, how would we use those in a, in a sort of, you know, Thanksgiving situation or just in our daily lives um, on an individual level? Yeah. I mean, that's, a, I mean, that's a, A very challenging question. Yeah, <laughs> I guess one would be to to try to be that relatable, sympathetic out party exemplar uh, in conversations. Right, so right. communicating respect and listening to people one disagrees with, you know, not being so eager uh, to try to convince them of your own view, but, you know, take the time to explain your own perspective, how you came to it. Uh, just, you know, present your perspective as a product of your, you know, your own experiences and just try to help them understand, you know, why you could uh, have the views you do while still being a like relatable, right. understandable person. Mm -hmm. uh, and then be a respectful person that takes the time to, to mm -hmm. understand what they're saying mm -hmm. and where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. 
so you're sort of um considering yourself an ambassador like a moderate ambassador for your your group in a way yeah you know i talked to exactly you know i I talked to david brockman at one point about their about the deep canvassing research that he's done yeah 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 yeah, which finds this technique of deep canvassing where these canvassers come door to door. They're, they're like actively trying to convince somebody on some issue, but the way they do it is they they ask the person first about uh, canonically what they'll do is they'll ask you about like your experience feeling marginalized or disrespected, and then they'll connect that experience to a perspective uh, that they'll offer from some disadvantaged group like trans folks or immigrants, uh, people who've been treated badly or disrespected in, in the U.S., mm-hmm. and then connect it to some political initiative that's that's happening. Uh, so they'll basically try to get you to, to share your perspective, connect that to that of the group that's affected by this policy, and then now they've enlisted you, your empathy. They, they get mm-hmm. you to connect your experience to this group. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember asking, like, why do you think this is effective? And they've done a lot of research on why it's effective, but I remember he said... He was like, honestly, for a lot of these people, this is like the very first time they've talked to somebody from the right. left right. that where they were like, this person's really nice and respectful to me. They don't talk to people on the left very much. Uh, and when they do, it doesn't go like this, you know? Yeah. And, and uh, you're kind of, uh, it's, it seems to relate to a little bit what we were talking about before with the perceptions of the other group, you know, the, I don't know if they're meta perceptions, but like people have yeah. this idea of um the other group being more extreme than they really are and then if you can be that example of 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 not being so extreme like that like you say it might be the first time they've had that kind of interaction that first sample of someone who is isn't a caricature of the other side i mean i feel like it all fits together right you know like mm. the uh you don't get exposure to uh relatable sympathetic people on the other side because you're not interacting very much with people mm other side whether whatever side you're on you're also not getting accurate data about what they really believe you know so you don't know what their views are uh and you're operating on stereotypes because mm-hmm. why do you not have the accurate data because you don't interact with these right, folks right. <laughs> yeah. yeah and then the moral reframing stuff fits too you know like uh when you go to persuade them you don't think about their perspective maybe because you don't understand it well enough mm-hmm. or just not taking the time to or you're not motivated because you dislike them so much mm-hmm. uh, and you're just giving your own reasons rather than really thinking what would they need to you know to agree with you while being who they are you don't really understand who they are deep down though um and so these are like lack of interaction these stereotypic portrayals that we get through our the media that we consume they really make it hard to achieve our political ends and and also to to get along with one another mm, that's really interesting i suppose also like you people might not feel that they can reframe something in in the uh other parties um kind of uh from the other per- parties frame because they assume it's further away from their frame than it really is you know because we have this perception of it being such a huge gap yeah, yeah, that's an interesting way to think about it too. I hadn't mm. thought of that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the the last little piece I was just going to ask because you, you mentioned also this using broader identities um, was the other um, sort of uh, intervention type of intervention that proved effective. So, on a practical level, what does that look like? Well, I think seeking out commonalities. Uh, you know, this is was one of the things that. Barack Obama was so good at, he would go to these audiences and, uh, you know, critics would accuse him of, you know, 
code switching too much or, you know, being mm. insincere. But mostly people loved it, you know, and mostly mm. people thought of it as just this is this is what a very socially intelligent person does is mm. that they, they go to a certain setting and they they make light of their their faith, you know, they and that they have the same, you know, religious views as the audience they're talking to. And and another audience like, oh yeah, my mom's from Kansas, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, let's talk about that, you know. Mm-hmm. And then in another audience, like, yeah, like we we all love basketball. Let's talk about that. And just using these common interests, common identities, different backgrounds, it's you know, it's it's a way to connect. You know, it really, it really works. And it's something, I mean, just as someone who's lived in the Midwest and the South, uh, it, it, it's absolutely been critical right. in my own, you know, conversations across political lines. Uh, I've also lived in, you know, far left communities, the furthest left communities like Ithaca, New York, San Francisco, mm-hmm. Berkeley, California. Um, and I feel like I've accumulated a bunch of group identities that I've passed through mm-hmm. over the course of my life uh, that allow me to connect with different kinds of folks. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's, uh, I think it's a, it's a good way to get some footing, you know, in a conversation. It's really interesting because, you know, like you say, there is a sense that it, you know, some people could say that's an inauthentic approach, but those are all parts of you, right? Those are all valid identities. You're just sort of focusing on one that is resonating with the people that you're with. Yeah. And I mean, as much as possible, I encourage folks to try to do this stuff sincerely, you yeah. know, like, like for me, I, I I love interacting with conservative Southerners who bring me back to mm. experiences I had growing up in the South. And we, I like to talk to them about, you know, the, the things we have in common, because I don't get to talk about mm. them very much living in mm. the Bay Area, mm. California, meet people that I can talk, talk to about that stuff. Uh, so for me, that's, that's a good experience. And I think with the moral reframing research, sometimes I think people read that research as as super cynical as an effort to strategically manipulate people. And and certainly that's a way you could use that technique. Mm -hmm. There's nothing about the technique that's inherently uh, not cynical, but the way I would hope people would uh, approach that kind of persuasive technique is, is sincerely like taking very seriously where the other person's coming from and uh, trying to agree with them and and being willing in a deeply, deeply pluralistic, diverse society, being willing to agree with somebody for different reasons, Mm. you know, U S and North America more generally, you know, is so diverse, you know, like the U S has got an argument for being like the most, one of the more politically polarized and, and definitely one of the most racially and ethnically diverse countries in the world. Uh, and you, I just don't think it's realistic in a winner take all kind of, you know, first right. past the democracy, democratic system. It's not realistic to ask for everybody to agree with you for your reasons right. as well. Right. And to win. <laughs> you <Yeah. know? laughs> That's fair. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Thank you so much for the conversation. Yeah. Thank you both. This is uh, such a, great conversation i love the way you all approach these conversations with the emphasis on wisdom and i've I've enjoyed enjoyed uh prior episodes and so uh yeah yeah for me this this helped me think about this stuff so i really appreciate it